Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All right, if you're, we're passing out some handouts. The first handout is just one page. It's a chart. looks like this. It says Acts at the No, it doesn't say anything at the top. Just a chart. You can write Acts at the top. The other one is uh, <clears throat> just entitled uh, The Acts of the Apostles or simply Acts, and that is introductory material, which we're not going to get to tonight, but we'll get to next week. And then the third one is the uh, is an outline. Now, those of you who are watching via uh, via live streaming, our uh, <clears throat> the person who uh, uploads this stuff to the website uh, did not check his email this afternoon, so you're just uh, you're all just out of luck tonight. When he gets home, you know, a couple of hours, you know, it'll be up there, but until then, you'll just have to. Uh, Either write fast or sit back and enjoy it. Okay, those are the things. If you're, are we running out? Do we have enough? Okay, there's a lot there, Sandy. If you, Sandy, there's a lot there. Do not try to run them. Couples can share. They're being uploaded to the internet, so everybody can. In fact, there's a. I noticed several typos uh, after I uh, had after we printed it, so those have been corrected, so there's a, the, the version that's going to be up on the Internet is going to be a, a better, cleaner, uh, corrected copy. <clears throat> Who was that I was talking to the other day? Somebody had done something, and they'd gone over and over and over it, proofread it, proofread then they finally printed it, and they discovered, uh, I, I don't know who it was, and it was somebody who published a book, and they discovered all these errors. And my favorite story is when Alan Ross, who was about as uh, anal retentive as you can possibly be when it comes to analyzing data, whenever whenever we would hand in exams to him, he was a Hebrew professor, he would mark up anything. He he, he wouldn't necessarily be counting off or anything, but he would mark up every little uh, comma fault or misspelling or uh, typo, whatever it was, he commented on every little thing and every little paper, which was just mind-numbing considering we were writing 15, 20, 25-page papers uh, for, for his coursework. And he'd do the same thing on exams. And so when he published his commentary on Genesis, he had a group of about uh, eight or nine uh, Ph.D. students in the Hebrew department at Dallas Seminary doing all the proofing for him, and they proofed it and proofed it and proofed it before it finally went to the publisher, and then when they got the galleys back, they all proofed it again. And even after hours and hours and hours and hours of proofreading all of this, when the first um, printing came out, they found over 300 errors. You know, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes to the Writing of books, there is no end. The in in the the alternate version in the um, Hebrew, one of the Hebrew manuscripts, they added to the correcting of editorial errors, there is no end. So you never ever get a perfect final draft. 
it just doesn't just doesn't happen. All right, before we get started, let's uh, make sure we are uh, ready to study the Word this evening. We're spiritually prepared and ready to focus on the study of, of God's Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're uh, ready to focus and study this evening and make sure you're in fellowship. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we are thankful that we can come together this evening to fellowship around the study of your word. And as we begin this new study in the book of Acts, as we begin to come to understand the birth of Christianity and the church from the opening chapters of Acts, when the uh, disciples and another uh, 108 are in the upper room at the beginning to Paul in ha- under house arrest at the end, we see the expansion of Christianity through those first 30 years uh, of the church. So, Father, as we study these things and as we begin to uh, get an overview this evening, we pray that the Holy Spirit would just drive home some of the key themes and key ideas and key principles of application from this book uh, that we'll be studying for the next, uh, next couple of years. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, as I said, you should have three handouts. The first is a chart which just gives you kind of a just one-shot, one-page synthesis of of the uh, book of Acts. That comes out of uh, Bruce Wilkinson and Ken Boa's book, Talk Through the Bible. Then the second handout, which we'll get to next week, is sort of introductory material uh, on the book of Acts, dealing with the usual uh, introductory material related to the title, the author, the date, circumstances of writing, purpose, things of that nature, and that's uh, about five pages there. And then we have the outline. Now, a couple of things I'm going to start doing. We'll see how this works. But I'm uploading these in a PDF format to the Dean Bible website. So all of the handouts that we that I have on this uh, as we go through Acts will go into a folder. There is a page on the DBM website that's called uh, Doctrines. And within that Doctrines, on that Doctrines page, there's five or six folders, A to F, G to I, whatever they are, broken down by alphabet. And within the first folder, A, there will be another folder called Acts, A-C-T-S. I did that so somebody would get the spelling right back there. And... uh, so we'll have, uh, <laughs> just want to make sure you're awake back there. Uh, we'll have the, um, we'll have, we'll put stuff into that folder and that way you can just download it and you can print it out if you miss and, and as I noted, typos or, and I'll add to it as we go along and revise like the outline and some other things. So those things will be out there. Plus I'm going to upload them to the blog we started last year and then it didn't go very far because the blog takes a lot of time. And I'm finally getting some interest from some other pastors who are wanting to start a blog. And this was my idea in the beginning was to have uh, seven or eight of us who are pretty close uh, close to each other uh, contribute to a blog site because it is terribly time-consuming 
and for a pastor to try to keep up with a blog, try to put out one or two or three things a week or even three or four things a month, pretty much it becomes a, a slave master and you realize you've got shackles on and it gets pretty tough. So several men have tried to do blogs in the past and they all come to the conclusion it's just, you know, too much. So if we have different pastors contributing, then uh, there'll be a lot of uh, different information going up and that, that will be good as well. So I'm also going to be uploading these uh, to the blog and the link to the blog is on the Dean Bible website. Okay, I think that's it for introduction material. Now, tonight we're going to start Acts, and as is my uh, custom, when we start the study of a book, I like to go through in one hour uh, a summary overview of that particular book so that you have a bird's-eye view, sort of a a fly-over view of uh, a particular book. Now, Acts is a little longer than what we've looked at uh, some of the books we've looked at before, it's about 28 chapters. So I, I can't remember exactly how many chapters are in Kings. It's about that many, uh, First and Second Kings. But Revelation was 21 chapters. Other books have been somewhat shorter, so this is a little longer. But nevertheless, it can easily be covered in several ways uh, tonight, which is what we're going to do. Now, at the very beginning, as we get started, uh, we need to have some geographical orientation. I find this is always important for people because a lot of folks don't spend time with maps. Now, I don't quite understand that because when I was a kid, I loved to do two things. I loved to pour over maps and I loved to read encyclopedias. I, you know, my parents brought me one of these children's encyclopedias that had about 12 volumes, and I would just pull one off the shelf and read it from cover to cover. And so that's how you learn things. And when I get to maps, I just spend all my time looking at maps. So I love looking at maps. And when you have a book like the book of Acts that deals with lots of geographical locations, it's important to know how to orient to the maps and to the area that you're talking about. So first of all, we're going to look at this. I'm going to change this just a minute. I need to get rid of that there. Uh, we'll look at this map. This is a map of Israel as it existed at the time of Christ. And now there's two notable features here, and they both relate to water, that are the boundaries for Israel at the time of, at the time of Christ and the time of the beginning of the book of Acts. The first is that uh, the Mediterranean Sea, which is to the left. Now, always remember that when you look at most maps, now every now and then, uh, somebody tries to get creative, and they put a map in here that's got an oblique angle to it. But most maps orient with the top up, and that's north, or rather north to the tops, uh, south to the bottom, uh, west to the left, and east to the right. So you have the Medi- if you're sta- standing in Jerusalem, and you're uh, facing north, then the Mediterranean is to your left and the Jordan River is to your right. Those are the basic boundaries uh, for the land of Israel. The Jordan River runs from the Sea of Galilee up in the north and runs south down the great, this is part of the Great Rift Valley. It is uh, a uh, fissure that runs, a fault line that runs all the way down to uh, South Africa, and it runs from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south, actually, the t- name Sea of Galilee is a misnomer uh, because it is not a salt sea; it is a lake. 
but the uh, translators into English years and centuries ago uh, didn't catch the distinction there from the uh, Greek word, so it has come down to us as the Sea of Galilee. So you have the Sea of Galilee in the north, the Jordan River flowing from north to south uh, to the Dead Sea. In the north, you have the province of Galilee, uh, the Galilee, and then in the south, you have Judea. And these were the predominant areas where the Jewish people lived at the time of Christ, in the Galilee and in the north, and Judea in the south. And in between, you just have Samaria. Just wanted to see who was awake. You have Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were a mixed-blood people. They were not... Uh, pure ethnic Jews because the, after the northern kingdom of Israel had been uh, conquered by the Assyrians and the people who lived there had been uh, deported and moved to other areas of the Assyrian empire, the Assyrians had also moved other ethnic groups into Samaria. So it was a uh, mixed race people, mixed racial group, and they were looked down upon with tremendous... Uh, uh, bias and prejudice by the Jewish Jews at the time of Christ. They did not um, uh, believe that they were, since they were not uh, pure blood and descendants of Abraham, that they were uh, not to be talked to. And so if you were uh, traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, you would go uh, from Jerusalem, which is located... Uh, uh, let me get my arrow over there, located uh, here, uh, just uh, west of the northern tip of the Dead Sea. You would travel uh, down the road from Jerusalem along Jericho and then cross the Jordan River here over into the territory of Perea on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And then you would go north and, uh, through the area of Perea and the Decapolis. Uh, Decapolis literally means ten cities, and this is named for ten um, ten cities that were uh, established by the Romans, and so they were primarily large Gentile cities. Uh, Scythopolis is on the map here. That was an older name. Scythians had come down and settled in that area uh, earlier, but the original name was Beit Shan. And some of you who've been to Israel with me have been to Beit Shan before, and that's that was one of the cities in the Decapolis. And then you uh, <coughs> also have Jerash which was uh, located over where uh, Gerusa is located right in this particular area. So this was a city, the area of the Decapolis. And then once you got up towards the Sea of Galilee, then they would cross back over in the Jordan uh, west into Galilee. And that was typically how, you, how uh, the travel went from north to south uh, during the first century A.D., so the areas that you need to be aware of, Mediterranean Sea on the left, uh, Jordan River running from north to south to the right, Judea was the territory in the south, the Galilee is the territory to the north. Uh, north of the Galilee, you have uh, Syria, which is just off the map uh, to the top. Now, if you look at this particular map, you see that it is shaded different ways. Now, I'm, we're not going to get into a lot of these details right now, but you see that these are... Uh, shaded the way they are because uh, as the territory was divided among different rulers all within the line of Herod the Great, 
that's that's where they they um, ruled. So that Herod Antipas is in the north in Galilee here over uh, Perea. Uh, Philip is up up uh, in this area over into what is now Syria, the Golan Heights. Uh, Archelaus uh, was over the area of the green down to the uh, down to the to the south, Judea and Samaria. So that just gives you a little geographical orientation for the uh, area of Judea and Galilee at the beginning of the book of Acts. Now, this is a, a map showing the layout of Jerusalem at the time of Christ and at the time of the beginning of the book of Acts. Your orientation, again, is to the north. Uh, the north is at the top. Uh, you have to the east, you have the Kidron Valley here, which runs just uh, east of the Temple Mount, and to the uh, east of the Kidron Valley, not indicated on this map, you have the Mount of Olives. The area uh, here, the square area here, represents the uh, temple grounds, the uh, foundation uh, support that was laid by Herod the Great as he expanded the, the uh, temple. Uh, Solomon's portico is marked out here, which is mentioned in uh, in the book of Acts. Over here you have the Roman uh, fortress of Antonio, named for Mark Antony, and it was built up high enough so that the Romans could look over the wall into the temple grounds to make sure that uh, nobody was fomenting rebellion uh, down in the temple area. Uh, you also have uh, uh, the palace of Herod Antipas is located uh, down here in the what is now the old part of the city, not too far from where we believe the palace of the high priest was, although there's an alternate site I believe just south of there today, but uh, uh, it's probably it, the high pr- the priests lived in this particular area in what is now the Jewish quarter, part of the old city. So this gives you a little bit of an overview. The city wall to, up till about eighty forty ran along this dark line here, which would place the traditional site of Golgotha just outside the uh, wall on the west side. And although that's been debated for years, they discovered uh, the gate, one of the gates along the wall uh, right in this area here in the, uh, as they were doing some excavation at the basement of a of the Russian Orthodox Church that's about, what, maybe 50 yards to the east of, uh, of the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So this gives you a little bit of an orientation. This is the south wall on the southern steps, the gates of uh, uh, the all the gates here on the uh, on the temple mount, and this is where you have a number of um, of, uh, of pools where they would wash uh, ceremonial washing before they went into the temple. And this is probably where uh, baptisms took place on the day on the day of Pentecost. This slide gives you a little bit. A broader view. Same thing here. You have the Mount of Olives. Here you have the uh, Temple Mount and the Temple Enclosure. Over here, the location of uh, of Golgotha. Down here, you have the uh, Upper City. See, in this map, they have the House of Caiaphas uh, located here. Uh, when we were on a couple of tours to Israel, we went to that location, and. Um, uh, but it's probably not correct. It's m- more likely that 
uh, the high priest lived with the, in the priestly area where he had easy access uh, to the temple mount over here. So this area, especially around the temple, is going to be important um, in our study. Now here's one other shot, just to an artist's rendition. Now this shows uh, the north is to the uh, upper left, going that way, so screwy uh, orientation here, and the Mount of Olives is sort of... Uh, at the two o'clock position, so it's a little bit off center there, but that gives you an idea of what the city of Jerusalem looked like about the time of the beginning of the book of Acts. Okay, when we think about the book of Acts, there are the the main verse is Acts one eight. If you can think through Acts one eight, you can think through the whole book of Acts. This is just very simple. I encourage you that over the next uh uh Several weeks or several days, actually, it's 28 chapters. You can, if you read five chapters a day in the next week, you'll read the entire book of Acts. And that doesn't take that long to read five chapters, about maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, the key verse for the book of Acts is Acts 1-8. The Bible is excellent literature. When God the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, uh, he didn't write sloppy literature. He's not a bad writer. Uh, the writers of Scripture wrote with using their own vocabulary, their own personality, but uh, it is God the Holy Spirit who is superintending the uh, process of, of inspiration and overseeing their writing. And just like any good writer gives you a thesis statement that uh, lays out what his, what his purpose is or summarizes his basic arguments, you can usually find a verse... Uh, within any book of the Bible that gives you the purpose statement for the book, and in some cases will give the elements of the main points of the of the book itself. It's always fun to find, try to find and discover the that thesis statement. In Acts, it is in Acts one eight. Jesus is speaking to the disciples immediately before his ascension to heaven, and he says to them that they are to wait in Jerusalem. For the arrival of the Holy Spirit, that he's going to leave and he will send, as he had promised in John 14, another comforter. And this is the Holy Spirit. And so in Acts 1.8 he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Now that's not just simply a future tense declarative sentence. It has a sort of an imperatival force to it. You will be my witnesses, and that comes as a result of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. That is the uh, outline for the book of Acts. As you see, if you go back and look at the chart, looking across the, um, the top, uh, the top row at the very top gives you the uh, the focus, which is in the upper left-hand corner, and the focus of each section of the book. There's these three sections to the book, Jerusalem, uh, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the threefold division for the book of Acts. If you can just think about that geographically, Jerusalem, the city where they start, and then they're going to leave Jerusalem, and there's going to be a couple of ch- chapters that describe their ministry in Judea and Samaria, and then they go further out to the uttermost parts of the world. And so the first seven chapters, and a little more, up to 8-4, focus on Jerusalem. 
Then from 8.5 to 12.25, the focus is on uh, Judea and Samaria. And then in 13.1, according to this chart, I break it down a little differently. Uh, uh, the expansion is to the ends of the earth. The, uh, se- the second lot category, the second row cross, represents the divisions, the subdivisions of each major section. And you see then the first section, which according to uh, the breakdown of uh, this book goes from 1-1 one, one to 8-4. I break it at 6-7. Um, that uh, this is the covers the power of the church and the progress of the church. The power of the church in the first two chapters and the progress of the church in 3 through 8. I would put that at 3 through 8. The focus in Jerusalem is, if you go down further to the topic row, the focus is on the witness to the Jews in Judea. The focus of the message of Peter's sermon in Acts 2, Peter's sermon in Acts 3, are targeted to the Jews. They do not take it out beyond the Jewish people. And the message that governs both Peter's, both of Peter's sermons in Acts 2 and Acts 3 is still related back to the original message of John the Baptist at the beginning of the gospel. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is still a legitimate offer of the kingdom being made in those first chapters of Acts. And then you have, um, uh, as the, as the uh, gospel goes forward, persecution breaks out and they are moved out from Jerusalem, uh, their comfort zone, and you focus on Stephen's ministry and Philip's ministry uh, to those outside of, of Jerusalem, to the Samaritans, to the, um, and to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then in the third division, the focus is to the Gentiles as uh, this follows Paul's salvation and uh, his return to the church of Antioch when he and Barnabas are first commissioned to uh, take the gospel uh, to the, uh, out to the Gentiles. And that covers the area from 13.1 to 28.31. Acts begins with 120 believers in an upper room in Jerusalem, and it ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome. And in those 30 years, the uh, Christianity just explodes on the scene in the Roman Empire. And during that time in the book of Acts, it, it covers much of the Roman Empire. We know from extra biblical information that the gospel went many other places. Christianity explodes down into Africa. For example, you have on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, there were anywhere from 150 to 250,000 extra people in Jerusalem, according to Josephus, who came there for the celebration of, of the Feast of Pentecost or uh, Sukkot. And so they come there, and then they go home. And many of those who came heard ser- uh, Peter's sermons uh, from Acts 2 and Acts 3, and they go home and they... Uh, bring back the good news that Jesus Christ had dies, has died for the remission of the sins of the people. Then you have 
uh, for example, with, um, with Philip and the Ethiopian uh, eunuch. He is an official in the Ethiopian court, and as he is headed back to Ethiopia, he is saved along the way due to Philip's uh, witness to him, and so he takes the gospel home. We know from what Peter tells us in First and Second Peter that he went to the second largest Jewish community in the ancient world at that time, which was in Babylon, and so he takes the gospel to Babylon, to the Jewish community there. There's no biblical record of that. We know from also from extra biblical records that Thomas took the gospel, uh, took the gospel to, uh, to India. Not too long ago, I had to go through a sleep study over here at, uh, where I go to, to the doctor and the, um, the medical technician who supervised the sleep study, was from India, and he said he found out I was a pastor. I could hardly understand a word he said, but he told me, he said, I am a St. Thomas Christian. His family and his, the area of India where he was from, traces their uh, understanding of Christianity all the way back to the first century and when Thomas uh, the Apostle went to India and took the gospel there. They're now uh, Roman Catholic because when the Portuguese came into uh, India in the 16th century, uh, they uh, took them in within the Roman Catholic Church, and the Jesuits uh, brought them into a uh, uh, Roman Catholicism. So you have the expansion within just 30 years of the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, We know that the gospel goes down into Africa, it goes down into Arabia, it goes into uh, Mesopotamia, into Persia, it goes north of the Black Sea, it goes into into, uh, Western Europe. And all of this happens in a very, very short time, and we don't have records of a lot of it. We just have hints of traditions here. Uh, here and there. So uh, people traveled. And when we look at Acts chapter 2 and we see all the different geographical locations represented there by those Jews who'd come back to Jerusalem uh, for the day of Pentecost, then we uh, realize that they went back like missionaries and they took the gospel uh, to many parts of the Roman Empire. And we just don't have a, a biblical record uh, there to preserve that for us. As we look at this chart, the next thing I want to point out under topics is that we see a shift in terms of the key players, the key figures in, uh, in Acts. There's a transition that occurs there from Peter to Paul. Peter's the dominant individual at the beginning, and then there's a transition that takes place from uh, chapter 8 through chapter 12. Uh, we have a couple of chapters there focusing on Philip, focusing on uh, Stephen, then it'll go to Paul, then it'll go back to Peter. Uh, for a couple of chapters, then it'll go to Paul, then to Peter, then to Paul, and then it's Paul for the rest of the book. So there is a, at the beginning, the emphasis is on Peter, and then at the end, the, basically the uh, second half of the book, a little more than the second half of the book, the emphasis is on the Apostle Paul. The place, the focus, geographical focus goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the uttermost part of the earth, as indicated in Acts 1-8, and in terms of the timeline, uh, the first part covers approximately two to three years, the second part approximately 13 years or so, and then the last part covers a little more than uh, 14 years. If you look at the, um, print that out, at the latter part of the, is it in here? Yeah. The latter part of this outline handout, there's a chronology there that I have um, 
that I've put in there so that you can sort of orient yourself chronologically to the progression. This is uh, taken, and I've adapted, modified a couple of things, but most of this came from a uh, work that was done by Dr. Harold Honer, who went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. He's uh, head of the Old Test, or head of the New Testament department, rather, at Dallas Seminary. Chronology was sort of his specialty. He wrote his uh, Ph.D. Uh, dissertation at Dallas on um, uh, dealing with chronological aspects of the life of Christ. And then when he went received his second doctorate from Cambridge, uh, he focused on the life of Herod Antipas. And so much of the work that uh, Dr. Honer uh, specialized in had to do with chronology. And this is the based on his uh, chronological work on the apostolic period. And so you can we'll we'll cover some of that as we uh, as we uh, go forward. But this gives you an idea of of the progression of events and when they took place. And you see there that Jesus was crucified in uh, AD 33. Uh, Paul, that's about eight or nine items down. Paul uh, is converted in uh, chapter nine in AD 35, just a little over two years after the crucifixion. And then Paul uh, comes back to Antioch in um, uh, chapter 11 in A.D. 43, which is uh, some eight years following his his salvation, and he doesn't head out on his uh, first missionary journey until approximately uh, the spring of 48, which is some 15 years after the crucifixion. And so that gives you a timeline, and I've also inserted on the on page six there uh, when he wrote different uh, different epistles, and so that gives you an idea of how all of that fits together. And we'll go through that a little bit as we as we orient to uh, to the book of Acts. So this is the breakdown. Just remember geographically, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. The first part's Peter, second part's Paul. And they begin in Jerusalem, and it ends in Rome. Based on this Acts 1-8, we have a three-part outline that is that you have before you. I'm going to break this down some for you as we go uh, cover this in the next uh, 25 minutes or so. First part, uh, on one, one note on the outline, I'd always try to outline historical or narrative books like this with God as the subject, because God is the one who is working out his plan in history. These things don't happen randomly. We have to think in terms of the writer's intent and the claim of Scripture that this is the objective revelation of God given to us. And uh, assuming that that is true, then we recognize that there is a governing hand a guidance on the writers of Scripture to include that which God wants to preserve uh, for uh, the future and that which he does not want to preserve for the future. Of all the many different things that happened uh, in the first century and in those 30 years after the crucifixion, there are, it could fill volumes, but these are the things that God uh, thought or God decided was important for us to know because this pr- is what g- provides a framework for us 
to understand the rest of the New Testament. If we didn't have the book of Acts to fill in the historical gap as to what happened to the disciples after the crucifixion, then we wouldn't have a framework for understanding uh, the background for the, any of the epistles. We would know what this had, uh, what this had to do with. So, I always try to at least get the first two levels of an outline where God is the subject because he's the one who is behind the scenes working through uh, all the different details of history, bringing about his, his end in history. So the first chapters, uh, down through 6, 7, God through the Holy Spirit authenticates, empowers, and directs the apostles' witness in Jerusalem. Notice the emphasis on witness. This comes out of Acts 1-8 when Jesus said, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. Uh, God is directing their witness. This is a legal term. And actually, the book of Acts is not just history. It is a an, an editorialized type of history that is designed to prove something, to make a legal case. It is often uh, suggested that it is a, an apologetic. Now, op- apology is a word that means, in English, it's come to mean uh, uh, telling someone you're sorry, but that's not the uh, root meaning in Greek. The Greek word apologia has to do with presenting a legal defense to uh, to for a particular position. So if you are going to court and you're being tried for something, then when your lawyer stands up to defend you, he is presenting an apologia. He is giving presenting evidence to prove his basic point that you have not uh, committed that particular crime. And so Luke, who is writing. Uh, this book is presenting it in the form of a legal defense. He is marshalling the historical evidence to demonstrate that what, it, what took place uh, on the day of Pentecost, what takes place as the birth of this new entity known as Christianity or the church, is not something that just happened by chance. It's not something that was manufactured by uh, individuals, they didn't just get together and have a little conspiracy and say, let's start our own little religion, like somebody out, some hippie out of Haight-Asbury back in the, uh, back in the 60s. Uh, this was something that was st- a work that was started by God. And so he lays out the evidence. He's going to quote from a number of passages in the Old Testament to buttress his case, and he is going to present uh, historical evidence and also quotations from various a non-Christian speaker, such as Gamaliel, who was one of the foremost rabbis in uh, in Ju- uh, Jerusalem at that time, also later on from the mouth of uh, uh, f- the Roman governors uh, Festus and Felix, and um, also from uh, from Herod. So this is everything fits together in a very uh, very tight argument. Uh, to demonstrate his case. So he's going to be authenticating uh, what is happening to show that, uh, va- validate the principle that we've seen throughout Scripture, is God doesn't, whatever God does in private, he always authenticates through miracles or something else in public. He never does something uh, and reveals something privately to some individual that goes counter to what he has uh, revealed to others or what he has authenticated uh, objectively in public. 
And so the first part, God, uh, through the Holy Spirit, authenticates, empowers, and directs the apostles' witness in Jerusalem. Then second, God expands their witness outside of Jerusalem into uh, Judea and Samaria. And then third, God is going to expand the church to the ends of the earth. That's the basic outline. So in the first section, when God, through the Holy Spirit, authenticates and empowers and directs the apostles' witness in Jerusalem, there are two basic sections here. The first section covers the first two chapters where we see the birth of this new spiritual entity that we will call the church. And in the notes, I'm going to capitalize this because we're talking about the universal body of Christ. We're talking about all of those who have uh, believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died on the cross for their sins. We're not talking about any particular uh, denomination or local church. In fact, there was only one denomination until 1517, basically, and that was what we now refer to as the Roman Catholic Church. Originally, it was just referred to as the Catholic Church or the Old Catholic Church, and roughly for the first six or seven centuries, it um, uh, ran along without a whole... Did, it did not enter into the theological framework that we later identify as Roman Catholic until, depending on what you're using as your criterion, until you get to somewhere between the 6th century uh, to the 11th century, somewhere uh, in there is where historians usually mark the transition. So this new spiritual entity, the church, begins on the day of Pentecost. That's the birthday of the church. And there are three things that happen in these uh, two chapters uh, that are worth noting. Actually, four. The first is the ascension of Christ to heaven. The ascension of Christ to heaven, and just before he ascends to heaven, he tells the disciples to stay here in Jerusalem and to wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. They don't know when he's going to come. They just know that he is going to come. And during that time, they are going to meet together, and uh, Peter decides that since they lost Judas Iscariot because he betrayed Christ, and uh, Judas then committed suicide, that his number needs to be replaced among the uh, 12 disciples. So we'll get into an investigation as to whether that was uh, right or wrong, uh, whether he was wise or foolish in making that decision. Then at the end of chapter 1, uh, we see the uh, that they have uh, uh, cast lots and chosen Matthias as the replacement for Judas. And then beginning of chapter 2, the day of Pentecost arrives. On the day of Pentecost, they, the uh, twelve get up and they go down to the temple and they come to the southern steps of the temple and there suddenly there's the sound of a mighty rush of wind and there, uh, or this happens at the house where they're sitting before they left and there appear to them divided tongues as a fire upon each one of them and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, contrary to what you've been taught, this is not the filling of the Spirit that we talk about in terms of Ephesians 5.18. We'll get into a lot of study on that, but there's two different words used for the filling of the Spirit in the New Testament. One is pimplemi, and one is plerao, and there's only one time that plerao is used with the dative, which is instrumentality, of the Holy Spirit, and that's in Ephesians 5.18. All of the other places are talking about something else. Ephesians 5.18, because of the grammar, talks about something distinct from this. These are all uh, related to uh, fillings of the Spirit that are m- more akin to the type of 
ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and a writer of, of Scripture. But we'll get into that uh, as we go through our study. And they began to speak in other languages. And the situation is there's uh, 17 different geographical uh, areas mentioned in verses 9 through 11, where all of these different uh, uh, Jewish people have come from to worship on the day of Pentecost. And they represent anywhere from 8 to 12 languages. It's hard to tell because some of these areas, especially those up in what we now call Turkey, areas such as uh, uh, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, had been under Greek domination for uh, a number of years, uh, centuries actually, three centuries, and so the the lingua franca of the day for them was Koine Greek. And it's a question as to whether they still spoke the ancient dialect. So there may be as few as three or four different language groups mentioned here. Uh, I've had some, some uh, read some scholars who suggest there's 12 for each of the 12 uh, apostles and uh, others suggest that there may be as few as four. But they're, they're speaking in human languages. This isn't some kind of mystical, uh, ecstatic utterance. And then Peter stands up uh, to preach, and he quotes from the Old Testament from Joel 2 to show that what they have experienced is a ministry of the Holy Spirit, not unlike that uh, mentioned in uh, Joel chapter 2. And he connects then this event Again, to the coming of the kingdom. Joel 2 is a passage that talks about the coming day of the Lord just before God establishes the messianic kingdom in Israel. And so he concludes with a, uh, an, a, a challenge to repent and to accept Christ. And this cannot be disconnected from the message of uh, John the Baptist and Jesus because he uses similar terminology related to repentance and baptism of the Holy Spirit. This, uh, as a result of this, there are some 3,000 that are uh, saved that day, and then they begin to meet on a regular basis. We're told in verse 46 that they continue daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, praising God, and the Lord, in verse 47, the Lord added to their church daily, those who are being saved. And so the church is growing dynamically by leaps and bounds every day, and they are uh, focused on the teaching of the apostles, verse 42, the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, that's fellowship with God, not man, as exemplified through breaking of bread and prayer. Then later that afternoon, on this ninth hour, that's chapter 3, Peter and John go back to the temple. They heal a lame man. And then everybody knows that he's been lame from birth, and so it's obvious that he's healed the uh, religious leaders, specifically the Sanhedrin. I mean, the uh, Sadducees uh, uh, can't do anything about this because it's done in public. It's witnessed by uh, numerous, you know, probably thousands of people there uh, in Jerusalem, and the man that is uh, that is healed is glorifying God. And so this is the occasion for Peter's second sermon. And again, he concludes with an offer that relates to the coming of the kingdom. Verse 19, he says, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing, that's a, a time, that's a key term for the kingdom, coming of the kingdom, the times of refreshing may come from the presence 
of the Lord. Then after this, uh, of course, now that they've caused such a ruckus, Peter and John are arrested at the beginning of chapter 4. They're taken before the, the, um, the Sanhedrin, and Peter addresses the Sanhedrin starting in uh, verse 8. So we have numerous uh, speeches or sermons uh, that are going on throughout the book of Acts. And all that the Sanhedrin can do is to tell them not to mention the name of Jesus and not to, and they're commanded, verse 18, not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So one thing we're going to have to deal with is the whole issue of authority and civil disobedience. Also at this time, this is later that same, the day of Pentecost, 5,000 men are saved. So we've got probably in excess of 14 or 15,000 people who were saved on the day of Pentecost. And then it just starts to explode uh, from there. In chapter 4, or excuse me, in chapter 5, we see an episode related to the early church lying to the Holy Spirit. And this is a serious uh, event that occurs to people Ananias and Sapphira uh, decide that they want to get a little extra credit, and so they sold some land, but they're going to keep some of the money back for themselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong was that they lied about it because they wanted to be thought of as being gracious and magnanimous and giving all the money to the church, and so they lied about it, and God the Holy Spirit makes it clear that this isn't going to be accepted behavior in the church, and so they are the first people to get slain, uh, slain in the spirit, as it were. And they both, uh, they both die. And then as you go through chapter five, we see that once again the apostles get picked up, uh, by the Sadducees and are arrested, uh, because the Sadducees specifically are indignant about them preaching on the, or proclaiming the realities of the resurrection. Remember the Sadducees were the religious leaders that uh, didn't believe in the existence of angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so they are particularly indignant about the message of the resurrection of Christ. And as this, the tension builds between the uh, Sanhedrin, which is made up of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the, these uh, disciples of Christ and followers of Christ, and the tension begins to build. At this time, we hear from a Pharisee in verse 34 named Gamaliel, who's one of the foremost rabbis at that time. And in fact, he was uh, a, a teacher of the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian. And he's one of the most well-known rabbis from this period. And he says, uh, when he is uh, confronted, what are we going to do about all of these Christians, he says, well, we've had these people who've come along uh, along the way who have claimed to be the Messiah, and it hasn't really worked out. Uh, Judas of Galilee claimed to be the Messiah. You all heard of him, right? No, we, we have never heard of him. And uh, he, he died, and then there were a couple of others that popped up and claimed to be the Messiah, and it didn't go anywhere. And he says... So it's going to be clear if this is a work of men, it will come to nothing just like these others. But he said, if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you you even be found to fight against God. So he is very prescient in his statement there that if this is from man, it's not going to go anywhere. Nobody ever heard of these other people who claim to be messiahs in the first century, but... uh, 
except for Jesus of Nazareth. And it is uh, Jesus of Nazareth who had the signs that attested and validated his claims. Uh, and so we have the beginning of Christianity. In chapter 6, uh, as we come to the next section, which is where I mark the expansion, in the first seven verses, we end the first part of the of the epistle, of, I mean, of the book here, and this is when they've realized that they've grown to so, such a large number that they have to begin to ad, uh, or be organized in order to carry out the day-to-day uh, administration. There's a number of widows, uh, especially those who come from outside of Judea, who have come from the Hellenized part of the empire, and they're neglected in being taken care of in the daily distribution of uh, food and other resources. And so the 12 have a, have a uh, not really a board meeting, I'm saying, using that facetiously, but it's that idea they get together and have a, have a powwow and decide that uh, we need to spread out some of the responsibilities. It's not good that we serve tables, verse 2, that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, verse 3, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So this is the first organization of the church where you have one group that's responsibility is to teach the word. And this is where we understand this is the pattern for pastors, that the primary responsibility of pastors is the study and teaching of the word. And then there's the appointment of these who are referred to as those who are serving. The verb uh, diakoneo is used here. This is the verb form of the noun diakonos, uh, which is a word for servant and has come over into English as deacon. And so these are not deacons at this point. They are simply uh, those who are helping with the administration of the financial resources and the food resources and making sure that those uh, who uh, are in need are taken care of. And then we have, uh, these are mentioned, and two of them are going to be highlighted in the subsequent chapters, Stephen and Philip. And Stephen comes along, and he is... uh, uh, quite uh, powerful, has, uh, has performs uh, various signs and wonders among the people in verse 8 that validate his message. This is always the purpose of miracles, is to validate a message. It's, the focus is never on the miracles in and of themselves. They're always uh, credentials to authenticate the message of the individual. And, of course, even a false teacher can perform miracles and so the first test uh, to validate this in Deuteronomy chapter 13 had to do with the fact that their message had to be consistent with accepted uh, previous revelation. So he is going to um, uh, be involved in ministry, and as a result, he comes um, in conflict with the religious authorities again, and he is brought before them. And so he then preaches a sermon that goes through the history of the Old Testament and how again and again and again uh, the Jewish people had a pattern of rejecting the prophets of God, starting with Moses and uh, the the, uh, Exodus generation and all the trouble they gave to Moses, and then later on with other groups and all the the various prophets that were uh, killed or stoned or sawn asunder in the Old Testament. And um, and so he ends up by accusing them at the end of having 
uh, always hardened their heart toward God and never uh, and always resisting the Holy Spirit in verse 51. And the result is that complete in a complete, completely illegal manner, the, they pick up stones and begin to stone him. There is no proper adjudication here that's com- completely violated the uh, legal mandates uh, within what we now call the Mishnah. But there's, this provides a transition because there's a young man that is standing there by the name of Saul. And so this gives us a little clue about the Apostle uh, Paul, for that was his uh, uh, Latin name was Saul. And if you look at that, um, if you look at the chronology, uh, Stephen is uh, stoned in 35, A.D. 35. Now, young man would indicate that Paul is at least probably 20. If he's 20 and this is 35 A.D., then that means that that he um, he was born around 15 uh, when he was uh, 15 years old, 14 to 15 years old is when his parents sent him from Tarsus to study under Gamaliel in Jerusalem, which means he would have arrived in Jerusalem about the year uh, 30. And um, this would mean that he would have been in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. And there, that you just have to sort of connect the dots. That it's not really laid out that way, but once you uh, lay it out, it's pretty interesting to think about the fact that that on all the gospels accounts, when you when you read about Jesus being in uh, in in Jerusalem and um, all the encounters with the Pharisees, that the apostle Paul or this young man Saul was probably uh, probably in the crowd. So Saul is. Uh, is confronted with the uh, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who appears to him then in uh, chapter 9 to challenge him with why he's persecuting him because Saul has taken it upon himself to try to wipe out this new uh, sect of uh, people who are following uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And so uh, in chapter 9, we see his conversion. He's introduced at the end of 7, and then we come back to him. We see the persecution of the church at the beginning of uh, chapter 8. It's that persecution that pushes everybody out into um, into uh, Judea and Samaria. And so since uh, we've already run out of time, I'm going to go ahead and stop here. It's a nice break. Just cover, I didn't cover the whole thing, but we got... Uh, got covered, caught up in some other things there at the beginning, but we got through the first um, first seven chapters, and next time I'll come back and we'll cover the remainder of the book of Acts. Anybody have any questions at this point before we conclude? No questions. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to see how you worked in the early church, to see the dynamics of the growth that took place as the church simply exploded there in Jerusalem in those first uh, few weeks, going from uh, just a few believers, probably no more than uh, 150 or 200, to uh, maybe as many as 15 or 20,000. And then as it began to spread out, from those who were uh, believers in Jesus at the very beginning. 
Father, as we continue the study in Acts, may it not be simply an academic study, but that as we get into the principles and the various uh, doctrines that are there, uh, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would use that to expand our understanding of our spiritual life and our salvation and your work in human history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.